Remember that that terrible NBC show Chuck from like six seven Chuck. years ago? <sighs> okay, fine. Radio Drone. Welcome to another Thursday night. I am Josh Hadley. With me, as always, is Cecil T. Not Tom Servo. Yes, you are. I am. And with me, as always, is Peter Checkmate. Indeed. Guys, do you know what you should do? This is a great marketing thing. You should go to adamandeve.com, and then you would go and you would use the promo code DROME to get 10 free gifts on top of whatever you order. You would get six free DVDs. You would get a free mystery gift, a gift for him, a gift for her, and free U.S. shipping. Could you get a better marketing deal than adamandeve.com with the promo code DROME? Could you? Hell no. Well, tonight we're going to talk marketing. we got a very special guest later, which I'll, who I'll get to. How important is marketing of a movie to you? Do you think that a bad marketing campaign can destroy a good movie or a great marketing campaign can completely elevate a piece of crap? How important in the legacy of a film is the marketing? It, it's important. But uh, I think that the, the problem is that uh, it's become too formulaic is they're not now uh, movies and television shows and all that. It's no longer really considered art. It's considered product. So it's like, OK, well, we have action movie. So we have to make an action movie trailer. You know, we have to do this. We have to do this. And it's like, OK, what is this? It's a horror movie. OK, well, we have to do a horror movie trailer. And they have all the same beats and they all do the same things. And it makes everything sort of this generic slurry. So there are occasional times where you'll see something like the trailer for the Mad Max movie where it's mm -hmm. like, wow, that stands out and that looks unique and cool and everybody gets excited. But mostly it's like, oh, 22 Jump Street. Like it, it's it it just looks like another generic oh, piece. Oh look, Terminator Genesis. <laughs> I I'm I'm excited about the potential for that one, but uh, but but the, the marketing it it's like they do a lot of the you know they'll take all right well here are the main stars and we'll put their faces all over a, a billboard and we'll we'll plaster it everywhere and we'll put it on all the movie sites. And they all just kind of do the same thing. And then, the, and then the movie gets released. And then a day later, the slate is wiped clean and they move on to the next thing. It's just it's no longer really about the uh, about the art of it. It's just about pushing a product. I think it is important because if you look at a lot of movies, the way they're promoted is just completely wrong as to how the movie actually turns out. I remember back when I think it was like 2011, back when Drive came out. I had no idea about the movie. The movie was so underpromoted and the trailers that did come out for it looked very fast and the furious ish and hardly anyone went to go see it. And I decided to just go watch it at random. And what I was treated to was a was a great sort of 80s style, you know, neo noir crime thriller. And, and you got none of that from the trailer. None, none whatsoever from the posters. Nothing. Every poster like showed uh, an, an engine with like drive and bold letters and it. it just looked like 
a Fast and the Furious film, which is not something I tend to go watch and enjoy. It's not really my thing. So when I actually sat down and watched Drive, I was like, this was marketed horribly. This would have done so much better if a bit more care was actually taken into marketing it properly. And I, th- I think what I'm what I'm noticing is is the studios are marketing what they want to do well. Um, what what gets the most promotion, the most spotlight is the movies that they want to do well. They want Terminator Genesis to do well. So they've got the big, you know, Arnold's in the trailer and they're showing all the action and, and all that crap. And the movies they don't really care too much about, the movies that uh, more of the lesser known but still talented directors are putting out, they're not really focusing so much on that. They're just slapping a, a generic poster with it, a generic trailer with it. So it is important. And I think um, nowadays it's it's really lacking more than it ever did because marketing used to be so awesome so many trailers used to be great like the trailer for carpenter's thing the trailer for the original alien the the freaking trailer for terminator 2 like where it's just showing like terminators getting built at skynet and stuff and it doesn't show the movie at all like i loved it when they would actually promote stuff like that and you had these great fully illustrated posters instead of a you know uh, every poster looking like 40 year old virgin so yeah i think it's i think it's important when it comes to marketing how important do you think it is for cross promotion nowadays do you think you can get away with just a movie poster and a trailer or maybe a couple of tv spots or do you have to have the comic book tie-in and the video game tie-in and and then you've got the rate you know nowadays you don't have radio spots but you know you've got advertising on the on podcasts and whatnot and you've got in the old days, you'd have tie-ins with Pizza Hut and Taco Bell and all that. How important is it for now cross-promotion? Do you think a movie, a new movie, can get by on just on just its old-style promotional materials? Or do you have to also have the comic book and the TV spots and the trailers and the cross-promotions and the action figures and the video game? It, it almost seems like a movie can't exist anymore just as a movie. It has to be a property that can be cross-promoted nowadays. Or am I, the, am I just seeing that in a negative way? Cross-promotion, it's, it's a major double-edged sword because, yes, it helps to get the product out there, but unfortunately, when you're dealing with companies, they start to want to place demands on things. For example, when McDonald's did the cross-promotion for Batman Returns, parents were complaining left and right because Donald's cross-promotion was to put out uh, you know, the Happy Meals with the kids' toys, and it was all these Batman kids' toys. So that made parents want to take their kids to see the movie, and then consequently, Batman Returns really wasn't a kid-friendly film. So you had people complaining, and then McDonald's were like, well, you know, if you want to work with us for your next film, you're going to have to make the film, you know, much less dark. And then consequently, what happens? You know, Tim Burton, uh, Michael Keaton quit, and then they do Batman uh, Forever. Batman Forever. Forever, thank you. Batman Forever. And while I didn't think that Batman Forever was was particularly bad, yes, it, it was, was definitely... It was definitely a lot like much lighter. The color was turned way up and it was, uh, you know, it was way more silly. And then eventually it kind of and that still was too dark. And then it degraded into Batman and Robin, which then destroyed the franchise. They put too much effort into worrying about what the sponsors and the cross promoters want. And they alter their product according to that instead of just being like, you know, we want to make this movie and we, you know, instead of 
finding companies that would be willing to work with with this, they're going to alter it to appease the people that are going to front the money that are going to get it out there. Sometimes that swings the opposite direction, though, too. Look at the Marvel movies, and I don't necessarily mean the Marvel Cinematic Universe crap. Look at the first X-Men movie. The X-Men always had nice, colorful, unique uniforms in the comics, in the cartoons, Mm. everything. First movie comes out, they're all... They're all in black leather. First movie's a huge success. Very shortly thereafter, oh, look, all of the X-Men in the comics have black leather. The idea (laughs) was at Marvel Comics that was people who don't read the comics, we want to read the comics, they're not going to recognize Wolverine in a yellow and blue costume because they know Wolverine in black. So we have to change the comic to get the movie audience. They're even doing that now with the Marvel Universe. You know how in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Samuel L. Jackson is Nick Fury? as he was in the Ultimate comic books. But then people would go and pick up a regular Marvel comic, and who is this Nick Fury that's white? So now (laughs) they are bringing the Ultimate Nick Fury, the black one that looks like Samuel L. Jackson, into the regular Marvel universe because it's more recognizable to people who who don't read comic books. Isn't that a tad insulting when the marketing is more about how we change the initial product to fit the movie audience or the movie audience to fit that, or is comic book movies is that a unique little situation yeah i think it is i think that's um because it's it's tampering with the original art with the original story with the original characters there's nothing wrong with doing a spin on something and changing it uh, just for the reason that maybe something is stagnating and there's nothing wrong with cross promotion i mean i remember that since i was a kid i remember seeing batman on coca-cola bottles and you know the happy meals and i remember i actually remember more or less back in the day something would do well and there would be there'd be comic book spin-offs there'd be video games like it was amazing for me to be a kid because i not only had you know robocop and terminator movies but i had the robocop versus terminator comics and robocop versus terminator on sega genesis and it was kind of cool something would do well and then you would have all these other as long as as long as ljn did not make the game it was probably going to be pretty cool (laughs) nowadays they will change something to befit the audience that has seen either the movies first or the promotional material first. Like the whole Nick Fury thing, it's pretty obvious to me that they changed him to a black guy because they wanted Samuel Jackson to to play the part. Like this is just the guy they wanted for the movie, so let's change it for the comic books. And yeah, I don't know. I think that's I think that's kind of a low blow. It doesn't. Um, it still doesn't sit too well with me. Well, then how about when when the marketing is required to understand the film? Now, I haven't seen this one too often, but for instance, Predators. Now, it's not required. Okay, that's the wrong word. It's It aids the film. For instance, there's that whole subplot in the Predators movie about how the huge black Predators are preying on the traditional Predators. It's never explained. Well, it is if you go and buy the four-issue Dark Horse comic book that explains it, and that's the only way that that subplot makes any sense is if you also buy our comic book. Is mm. that sleazy or genius? It's it's kind of cool. I, I, I don't know if I would say genius. Definitely wouldn't say sleazy because there's a lot of cool tie-ins with that where you get uh, the video game tie-in or, or something like... The Pitch Black uh, uh, Raid on Butcher, you know, Butcher Bay, where it's the prequel to, uh, you know, to the movie. And so you're like you're getting more of the story and it's mm-hmm. not negatively impacting the film if you don't read it. It's actually or don't read it or don't play it or whatever, but it actually is kind of enhancing the thing. 
So you could see the movie or television show or whatever fine, but then you could also get this game, book, comic book, whatever, and get a little bit more insight to it and then enjoy it that much more. So that kind of thing, I'm all for, uh, as long as it's not you know something where it's going to alter the product. It's just going to make you look at it differently or just flesh out the story more or add something in that maybe they couldn't do in the movie or TV show or whatever. Well, then how about that? Now, this isn't as big of a deal nowadays. See, so long time ago, over a year ago, we talked about novelizations. And when they used to do novelizations, if it was a movie that was based on a book, they would re-release the book with the movie's poster on it. But then when you've got something like, I have a copy of I Am Legend by Richard Matheson called The Omega Man with Charlton Heston on the cover vastly different movie from book. I have The Running Man, the actual <laughs> Richard Bachman story with Arnold on the cover. They're not even close. I've got Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep with Harrison Ford and it's got the Blade Runner poster on it. Does that <laughs> mismarket the movie or mismarket the book or both? I'd say it mismarkets the book because people that have seen the movie are going to read the book to see if maybe it's... um. Because there are there are novelizations of movies that uh, just expand on the film like it's an extended. But a novelization script. and and being based on a book and then re-releasing it's not the same thing. Yeah, because there I mean there are um like Predator 2's novelization is basically just an extended version of the script. Whereas if you're gonna re-release a book for a film's release like with Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep and putting Harrison Ford on the on the cover. That's um that's going to throw that haven't really read the book yet because they're going to see the differences they're going to see that um Blade Runner was an adaptation and that it's not exactly the same I so I wouldn't copy, say the I have a copy of Pierre Boulle's Monkey Planet with Charlton Heston mm. on the cover those two <laughs> stories could not be more different other than the broad strokes <laughs> anyone who thinks they're getting an adaptation of Planet of the Apes is going to be why do the monkeys have laser guns, flying cars, jetpacks? What? There's nothing like this in the movie. Yeah, so it's it, it really if anything it'll throw people off from the book or at least hopefully if it's if the book is um cuz sometimes the case is that the book can be better than the movie it'll it'll draw people in more into that book and into the author, but I don't think it it definitely doesn't hurt the movie. If anything it's just it's promoting the movie more. Uh it it, it gives some more recognition cuz you're going to have a lot of people that would uh, maybe go in and uh, oh, there's that movie and and it's you know this this is the book you know adaptation or they don't realize that you know the book came first and uh, they might pick it up because of that versus you know the the unrecognizable original cover art or something where they're not going to know that the book is not called Planet of the Apes you know there so it, it's it's kind of an odd conundrum I don't know I don't really have too much of an issue with it the only downside is is that a lot of uh, the original books have really awesome cover art. And then when they go and they do the movie version, then it's kind of just the movie poster. Oh, uh, not, not even that. The, the original Running Man book, the Richard Bachman Running Man, has got that beautiful cover. It's this beautiful painted cover of a man on a TV inside a globe that's shattering. The paperback I've got with Arnold is just, it's, it's a scene from the movie. It's literally a screen cap. Oh, and it's like, oh my god, that is a hideous cover. I, I'm going to be digging into the past here. I, I think there's a lost art in radio spots. Have you guys heard some of the old Grindhouse-era radio spots from the late 70s and early 80s? 
that used to air on just average radio stations for Dawn of the Dead and Zombie and Kill Pussycat Kill and all that. Have you guys heard some of those? I haven't actually, but I'd love to listen to some of those. Analysis Films, the distributors of the controversial box office hit Caligula, now bring you a new challenge. Maniac. No horror that ever froze your blood. No terror that ever pinned you sweating to your seat can prepare you for... Maniac. If you think you've seen it all, you haven't seen anything until you've met the challenge of... Maniac. No one under 17 admitted. You are in a room filled with your friends, but they're all dead. Suddenly, one by one, they begin to move, to live again. Where the hell are they? Zombie. How can we stop Here, take this. Zombie. They are decaying. They are missing from their graves. Shut up! Zombie. It's shocking. That's why no one under 17 will be admitted. Save me. Watch out for them, a menace never known to man or beast before, an endless horde of crawling, crushing, gigantic creatures, so horrifying there was no word to describe them. Watch out for them. Watch out for Warner Brothers' screaming new shock sensation, them. Yes, I saw them. They were huge and scaly, and they had gigantic jaws, and and then one came at me. Kill one and two take its place. This is the endless onslaught of them clawing up out of the earth from mile-deep catacombs. See them. The most astounding journey into terror ever taken. Starring James Whitmore, Edmund Gwen, Joan Weldon, and James Arnett. Them. Caution. If you are turned off by the truth of what's happening on the street today, turn your attention away. Nigger Lover, the movie they tried to stop. So real, so violent, so brutally honest that only a few theaters dare to show it. Nigger Lover, where black and white passions explode. The chase that begins with love and ends with violence. Not just another black movie, different than all the rest. See Nigger Lover, the movie they tried to stop. A lusty epic of revenge, dungeons, wizards, damsels, desire, and a warrior caught between. The Sword and the Sorcerer, rated R, under 17, must be accompanied by parent. The most dangerous creature of the sea is not the great white shark or the killer whale. It is the giant octopus. Fact. It may weigh almost eight tons, with tentacles in excess of 100 feet. Fact. Octopi will attack humans, and the results are usually fatal. American International presents Tentacles, starring John Huston, Shelley Winters, Bo Hopkins, Claude Aikens, and Henry Fonda. Tentacles, the most gripping suspense you will ever experience. Rated PG. I know the old Russ Meyer... Bucks, Bucksonic babes, and you know where he does. <laughs> they, 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 they usually, they usually got Adolf Caesar did a whole lot of these. It was clearly Adolf Caesar's voice, but it, it was a thirty-second. This is the most terrifying film ever. Blah blah blah. But it was all done in audio, and they're fantastic. I think that's a lost art. The radio spot. Obviously, nowadays you don't really have that. But with so many internet radio stations out there. Wouldn't you think the radio spot would still have at least a minor form of relevance? No, because it's it's theater of the mind, and a lot of the people that are listening to the the radio stations and whatnot that would play this, they they don't want that. You know, they they just want to get 
to like the next commercial. Like back then, you would have the ones where you had somebody who had a commanding voice and they would this Friday the 13th this, and they would do that. That's it, why it Shadow just, Stevens became famous. His yes. Voice. Oh, that voice of his. Oh, so, oh, I love that voice. Th- that captivated people. And now people are so jumpy where it'd be like as soon as it would go to a commercial, they would just go to another station or they would you know, do whatever. I mean, uh, radio ads just are, are, are going away because radio is going away. So I don't see them wanting to invest money into something like that because but, it's... So you don't think that they could make the move from radio as that word to Internet? No, because it would require... <laughs> It would require a certain amount of creativity because now they're gonna they'd have to write a script for that specifically, and then they would you know they do the intercut of audio cues. And the thing is, if you're gonna do that on the internet, somebody's already in front of the computer. Well, just show them the trailer. I'm not against it. I just don't see anybody actually putting forth the effort in doing it. Do you think TV spots then are going the same way? Because I was watching an interview with Roger Corman from 1990. He was being asked by Bob Costas, what's the biggest thing he's seen change in marketing of Corman movies? And Corman said, and maybe this is outdated since it's from 1990, he said the TV spot. The 30-second TV spot is absolutely essential to selling a movie these days, which would be 1990. Do you think that's a time that's passed? Is the TV spot going the way of the dodo? TV spots are going the way of the dodo. Uh, I think, honestly, uh, I know. Uh, I think blipverts are going to be uh, the wave of the future, and then there's going to be all kinds of uh, reports of people exploding. To be fair, it wouldn't be the people that we cared about. Remember that that terrible NBC show Chuck from like six seven Chuck. years ago. <sighs> okay, fine. It, it was it was basically flash frames. NBC, during their primetime lineup in the month prior, would have flash frames between commercials that just said, Chuck, 9 p.m. and whatever the date was, and that's it. Just literal flash frames, which got to be longer and longer until they got to about a week before it premiered. So people's subconscious was picking up the time and date for Chuck without them even realizing it. In a way, that's kind of brilliant. In a way, I'm going, you're really getting into blipvert territory here, and we all know how that turned out. By the way, for those who don't know, a blipvert is a thing from the Max Headroom TV show. It's a 30-second ad compressed into three seconds that expands in your head as a full 30 seconds, so you can air 10 more of those for every 30-second spot than you could, but occasionally it caused somebody's head to explode. Just, you know, it was (laughs) one of those defects. I, uh, I mean, they still do advertise. I've heard movies advertised on the radio before, so I don't think it's necessarily dead. Um, I just think that it's it's not something that as many people will catch because I think a lot of people have converted to just watching things online, uh, streams and, and podcasts and whatnot. And in terms of TV spots, I think a lot of people are still seeing those as they run a lot of them, uh, I guess, during the Super Bowl and stuff like that. And a lot of people are still watching TV uh, but when it comes to radio, while they're they're still doing it, and while I have heard movies being advertised on the radio, as somebody who doesn't listen to the radio much, I really won't listen to a radio spot, so I won't really hear a movie get advertised there. So I'd say it's it's slowly dying just because more people are converting to the internet. But TV spots, I think those are still going to be around for a while. I mean, more people might be going on the internet lately, but I don't think I don't think TV is going to completely die out uh, anytime soon. 
Let's start to get into the interview I did with our special guest, Joe Dante. Yes, that Joe Dante. Let's talk about trailers and preservation. Joe Dante runs the really awesome site Trailers from Hell. He and I sat and talked about trailers, trailer preservation, and whatnot a little bit. We also talk about some of his, uh, the sequels to, mo- to some of his movies that where he had nothing to do with the sequels. You'll hear a little bit of that. Do you guys think that, that advertising is passive? It, like we talked about when we did the, the special, when we, when we talked to Joe Rubin of Vinegar Syndrome. Do you think that along with film preservation, we need advertising preservation? Or is that sort of an oxymoron since advertising is, you know, the, the root of all evil and whoever wants to watch a commercial, right? Do you guys realize how many movie trailers don't exist anymore that nobody kept a print of? Because once the movie was done, once the movie left theaters, what what do we need this trailer for? That's taking up space, and they would chuck it. There are TV commercials that are lost to time. For example, when the USA Network was going to do their 25th anniversary, they were going to do a special a couple of years ago. They actually went to the bootleg market and said, Hey, guys, do you have any old USA Network promos? We didn't save them. We want your off-airs <laughs> for this special. Should, should we be preserving some of this shit? Yeah, I think we should. I mean, um... Might sound a bit dorky, but every now and then uh, there are trailers that I want to go back and watch on on YouTube. Some some personal favorites. I mentioned the uh, the one for Terminator 2 that was shot with all the endoskeletons being made and the old Alien trailer. And um, I think a lot of them were very cool, very creative, and belong to the movie and belong to like uh, special features on a Blu-ray or a DVD and and deserve just as much to be cleared up, just like the just like the movie itself. So I, I think there, there is something to preservation of, of ads, at least for movie trailers, because a lot of them really are damn cool. You gotta, you gotta remember we're coming from the same business who recorded over old episodes of the tonight show and doctor they, who and doctor who there was not a lot of forward thinking there. They basically were looking at it from the perspective of this will air once, uh, maybe twice, and then people will forget about it and move on forever. And then, God, commercials? No one's going to care about this stuff in the future. And meanwhile, there's a lot of really great like old commercials out there. There's trailers that are, that are great. There are some very funny spots. Uh, I, I, just... bet, I bet people like Ben Affleck wish people would lose those damn Burger King commercials he was in in the late <laughs> 80s, huh? Yeah, I think I there's there a lot certain of... People, I bet there are like Keanu, I've got a Keanu Reeves commercial for Kroger's Grocery. I bet, I bet, the, <laughs> I bet th- those people wish those would go away. Yeah, there was, uh, there was a great one from, uh, if you know, uh, if Melrose Place, Thomas Calabro was the, like, the doctor who was screwing everybody. And uh, he was in a freaking Pound Puppies commercial. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that was one where I'm sure he would, you know, make it go away. But and Paul, um, Paul Rudd did one for, like, Super Nintendo or something where he's, like, playing on some big projected screen. Jack Black was the little kid in the original Pitfall commercial oh, Jesus. in 1982. If only we knew back then how unfunny he'd become. I know. He, uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm crazy guy. I'll make you whack your face. Oh, shut up. All right. We're going to go to the interview I did with Joe Dante, where we talk a little bit about trailers, trailer preservation, some of the sequels, such as Piranha sequels, Howling sequels, and, and Hollywood Boulevard sequels. And then, we, then we'll talk trailers, and then the three of us will be back. Matinee, is there is there a reason, and this is not a criticism, but is there a reason it wasn't just called William Castle? 
Because it's so obviously William Castle, and the movie is well, that's so what John Waters, that's what John, that's what John Waters said when he, he said, "Why didn't they just call him William Castle?" Well, because he's not William Castle. William Castle didn't make those kind of movies. They, they weren't making giant bug movies by the early '60s. That was long since gone. I mean, it, it had to it had to be a composite type character, and he also has, you know, uh, he has some elements of um, uh, Ray Dennis Steckler and Roger Corman and Jack Arnold and a whole lot of people who were working at the time and at different aspects of his, you know, none, none of William Castle never went from town to town with two prints trying to find a distributor. I mean, that just wasn't the way that worked. He was a studio director. So if, if, if we had decided to do that and go ahead and say it was William Castle, there would have been so many anomalies and people would have said, well, that's not what it was really like. So it's really much better to have people just say, well, that's guys based on William Castle. Because I, I loved the movie and I think Mant. I, I wanted to, I want to see a full Mant movie. I know the Laserdisc has all the Mant segments that you made, and they make a kind of movie. I still well, it's only, it's only 24 minutes, but I, some guy from Germany, uh, when the movie came out, said that he, would, he asked me how much would it cost to shoot another 60 minutes of Mant and make a feature out of it. And I said, you know, what's funny for 24 minutes <laughs> it just might not make it <laughs> to 84 minutes. This one might be a somewhat weird question. I love Hollywood Boulevard. What do you think about the sequels to some of your films that, that you had nothing to do with? Like Hollywood Boulevard 2, what do you think about that one? I don't think I've ever actually seen the whole thing. I, say, I remember seeing it. I was asked to be in it, but I, I, for whatever reason, I couldn't do it. And I remember going down there while they were shooting it uh, and seeing a little of it. And it was sort of like, well, you know, this is, this is a movie I don't need to see. So I never saw it. Uh, the reason uh, I... I sought it out was Joe Bob Briggs plays himself in it, and I had to see that. Oh, yeah, I didn't even know that. I know Corey Feldman's in it. And then there was, uh, you know, the, the, the remake of Piranha, which everybody says, well, what did you think of that? You know, and it, and it was sort of, again, like, you know, they had asked me to be in it, and I, which was nice, but then I found out they weren't shooting here. They were shooting in, like, Havasu or something, and I, just, I didn't want to go there, so I said, thanks, but no thanks. And then I saw the trailer, and I got it. I said, oh, okay, I get it. I see what they're doing. They're doing the same thing we did, but gorier. Oh, are you talking and, about the, the 3D one or the 1995 one? Yeah, the, one? the, the 3D one. No, the 1995 one, I don't even count, because that was when Roger made a deal to make, remake a whole bunch of pictures for Showtime. And he simply took the same scripts, and they gave them to different actors, and they reshot the movie. That was another one they asked me to be in, and I, I said no. And I said, so where are you going to shoot the movie? And they said, oh, we're shooting it right here. And I said, really, you're shooting it here? Alex. And where, where, where are you going to do the Toronto stuff? They said, well, that's all from your, your picture. So I realized what he was doing on Hollywood Boulevard with my movie. You know, he just he was using all this Toronto footage. And, and, and he got some guy to shoot, you know, the, the actor parts over again, except they're not funny. He didn't, there's no humor. It's oh, no, the 1995 one's played totally straight. It's totally straight, and it doesn't work straight. You know, it's like, why would you want to do that? But all of those Showtime remakes are dreadful. They're just, they're just a, a blot on Roger's career. <laughs> and I don't think he even made that much money on them. Well, and then what about the Howling sequels? Because I did a projection booth episode with Mike White on the Howling, and we all agreed the Howling is the only good Howling movie. Well, I'm, I would be forced to concur, although I may not have seen all the Howling movies, but in fact, I'm, I'm sure I haven't. I did see Howling 2, which is the picture that Christopher Lee apologized to me for the first time I met him. And um, and I've seen, uh, I, I saw the one with the kangaroos, uh, and then there was one that was sort of tried to be a remake of the novel, but wasn't. I don't think I sat through any of them continuously. I, I just, life is too short, you know. But there's always another howling picture in the wings somewhere. There, there's always somebody who wants to squeeze another buck out of that franchise. 
Now, the only one of your films I have not seen yet is The Hole. I just for some no, you're reason, not alone. <laughs> well, I want to. The trailer looks interesting. It doesn't look no, like it's nothing a wrong bad with the movie. Film. It just never got released. Well, uh, I was going to ask you, why did that one? Because I, I remember talking about this on an old, old episode when The Hole was first announced to finally come out in America. I said, how in the f*** can Joe Dante make a movie and nobody want to release it? Well, it it's, uh, it's happens more often than you think. Um, I the, the, It was really partly my fault because when they came to me to make the movie, I said, let's make it in 3D. Uh, this was like 19... Was now 2008, I guess, and uh, I, I knew 3D was burgeoning. There were, you know, there were uh, a lot of theaters converting, and uh, we they did the the math to figure out how many theaters would be able to play it in 3D by the time the picture was finished, and so that we went ahead and shot it in 3D, and that was great because I love 3D, and it was really we won an award in Venice for best 3D movie, the first award they ever gave for that. But the problem was that while I was making the movie, the phenomenon of fake 3D movies um, was rising. And uh, all of a sudden, when our picture was ready to be released, the theaters were comp- the, the few theaters that could play 3D were full, filled with uh, Alice in Wonderland and Clash of the Titans, neither of which had been shot in 3D, but which had been post-converted. And they were huge, and they were taking up all the playing time. And they had big stars, and we didn't have any big stars. We had just this little horror movie with kids and as a result it just lost its momentum completely it played in europe and, and, and did quite well and got good reviews and you know we were invited to the venice film festival and that was all that part of it was fine but when it came to the american um uh distribution it just didn't happen and didn't happen and before long it was an old movie that it hadn't been distributed and to this day although it's out on dva i, I don't think it's ever played a single uh, cable network in america even my last movie, uh, Burying the X, finally got a distributor, uh, and um, I'm hoping that you know it'll come out in, in at least ten cities or something uh, before it goes to VOD. But you know, saw John Carpenter's last movie went directly to uh, to VOD. It's just that that's just the way it is now. It's it's bad enough that they're low budget movies, but they're also independent low budget movies with no stars, and it's very hard. It's a very hard. Um, market to crack these days and no and nobody really knows anything nobody knows what the future is or who the movies are for or where they're going to play and um so there's a lot of it, it, a lot of intellectual pandemonium going on here in hollywood I, I don't remember how i first encountered trailers from hell i think i might have just been playing around on google and encountered it i think the idea of having various modern and vintage filmmakers having commentary tracks over classic trailers it's kind of a brilliant idea because it gives the audience a compressed behind the scenes of whatever movie that they're, the trailer is for, and you can watch the trailer too. I think it's kind of a best of both worlds. I think Trailers from Hell is something that people need to see more. How did you start Trailers from Hell? Well, I, I agree with you because the, the impetus behind it, uh, aside from the fact that I have a lot of trailers in my collection and they were just sitting in a vault and nobody was watching them, uh, and I thought, well, you know, maybe I should do something. I should show them, put them up on the Internet. And then I thought, well, that's really not that interesting. Anybody could do that. And I, said, I said, maybe I'll do a commentary track. So I did about five of them, put them up on a commentary track on the, on the, on the Internet. And they sat there for a while. And my friends started to see it. And some of them said, well, if you ever do this again, I have a movie I'd like to talk about. And it just basically grew exponentially from that. But the, 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 the impetus behind it was that although there are more movies available to see now, 
than ever were available in any time of my life. Nobody really knows what they are because film scholarship has taken a big dump along with uh, the fact that they don't run old movies on TV anymore. So the movies that my generation was very familiar with because they were constantly bombarded with them are now pretty obscure. And considering the fact that everybody is into whatever the latest trend is, it seemed to me that there was an awful lot of ignorance out there about old movies. And this was a way, I thought, to sort of bring them back into the zeitgeist by having people who were, you know, the audience can recognize talking about movies that probably the, the viewer may not have seen and directors and actors that they may not be familiar with that, that they can now point themselves to and say, well, look, I, the, 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 the happiest I am is when somebody comes up and says, I saw the trailer for such and such on Trailers from Hell. I'd never heard, heard of the movie. I, I, I went out and looked at it. It's great. It's one of my favorite movies, and I want to see more movies by this guy. That's really the call uh, because, I, you know, we're preserving movies, uh, not enough of them, but we are preserving them. And but we pre- we should be preserving them for people who want to see them. The the, the state of uh, knowledge about uh, films is not the same as it was when I was growing up. And we don't even have any real film magazines anymore. We've got film comment. That's about it. I mean, there used to be a whole lot of film magazines that talked about films and. And people used to, well, my generation used to go to films and then come back and argue about them and be passionate about them. And I don't see that today. Now, maybe it's just that it's hard to be passionate about, you know, Transformers 3 or something. It's just not something that you're going to do a lot of arguing about. But, but it, it, there's an awful lot of film history there and an awful lot of really interesting stuff to see that uh, I think has been sort of uh, pushed by the cultural wayside. And, and I, I'm, I'm just trying to bring it back into the light. Do you ever find that you have trouble finding a certain trailer? Like maybe no, so, so, all you know, the time, all the time. And if, in fact, movies that you would be surprised that are pretty well-known movies that that for various reasons the trailers are not around. And one of the one any time a movie was reissued, uh, they would take the original trailer and destroy it, and they would make a new trailer, and that would be the trailer that would be in National Screen Service uh, for like the life of the movie. But a lot of times the trailers were cut down. You can't find, for instance, an actual trailer for Bride of Frankenstein anywhere. The only thing that exists is a 60-minute cutdown that was made for television. And uh, it's all doopy and horrible-looking, and it's too short. Same thing with King Kong. The King Kong trailer is a, is a reissue trailer that only runs 60 seconds. And to try to find decent-quality trailers that are long enough to talk about, even on classics like that, is, is actually pretty difficult. Because I know I just, you know, I'm looking for certain trailers for movies like the 1989 Dr. Caligari. Closest I can find is a out now on video trailer from the front of a VHS tape. And I'm like, this ran in theaters. There has to be a trailer somewhere. No, no, there has to. There does have to be a trailer somewhere. And and obviously it, somebody has it. But I mean, this will, I, I've been having a lot of trouble with just new movies like Columbia Pictures. Very hard to find the trailers for, and the only ones that you can get are the RCA Columbia DVD trailers, which are very often, um, you know, uh, dupes of the theatrical trailer with little chirons that run telling you that you should buy the disc. And it's very hard to, to format those in a way that we can use them. And um, it's uh, film preservation is one thing, but trailer preservation is quite another. And it's just hit or miss. I mean, there's a zillion trailers on pictures that you don't want to see, and there's a whole lot of trailers for movies that I guess collectors snapped up the trailers and just sat on them. You know, and, and often you can go to YouTube and 
find something really terribly dupey and, and, and awful. And that's it. You know, that's all that's, that you can really find. And so we've been, we, whenever possible, we, we sort from 35 millimeter, but that's, you know, becoming increasingly difficult. But the problem is they have so, and, and even the Academy has a good archive, but they've got so much stuff and they're so far behind in cataloging it that half the time, even they don't know what they have. How do you get the people from Trailers from Hell? How do you get like Eli Roth or whoever you've got commenting on them? We keep trying to come up with new young people because we have a lot of oldsters, you know, who have been with us for a long time. But, you know, the younger the demographic, the better for us. And uh, and so we, we keep trying, like we have Ty West and Oren Pelly and some of the guys who do the new uh, the new kind of horror films. But um, it's we have people who ask us if they can do it. And our only criteria is, you know, we don't really want journalists because that's not what we do. We have to have filmmakers. And because of SAG, it's we can't really use actors because that becomes a SAG issue. Uh, however, if they're actors who direct and they come on as a director, then it's not a SAG issue. So it's it, it, there are little pitfalls uh, about it because everybody... We don't pay anybody. I mean, basically, we have a deal where if we make some profits off of their particular commentary by selling it to a DVD company or whatever, then we then they get money. But uh, nobody does this for the money. They do it because they love the movies. Do you ever have like two people fighting over the same trailer that you know? No, I want this one. No, I want. No, this we one. basically when we do that, we just let them both do it, and you'll find uh, if you look in the archives, there's like two or three versions of some trailers done by different people. So, do you think a site like Trailers from Hell? is something that's necessary today that Joe Dante has a standard that he won't go below that he tries at all times to try and get the original 35 millimeter 16 millimeter whatever the sh- whatever the movie was shot on he tries to get the original elements barring that he might go to a VHS dupe or something do you think that that trailers are something that are kind of making a comeback i mean when we were growing up there were a couple of trailer comps like Mad Ron's previews from hell and nowadays you can't go anywhere without a trailer comp or comps of i mean they sell dvds now of old commercials what's changed so much since we didn't used to preserve these to now we can actually sell them i would say the internet because the internet has brought forth a lot of things that people didn't think were going to be of any value because there was no there was no way to to kind of view these things with any regularity and it's also exposing the people that are fans of this so let's say you uh you have a website where you start putting up old trailers and then all of a sudden you know you have uh all kinds of traffic going to this website well then it's like i had no idea that that people still wanted to watch old trailers where before you might have somebody who has like a vhs tape or something with a bunch of uh, trailers on it it's not going to get the attention of uh, somebody working at Warner Brothers, but a uh, a website or a YouTube channel that is posting old trailers all of a sudden has you know 50 million hits. Well, that's going to get somebody's attention. So I think that that's really what's factoring into this. It's just what you were saying uh, earlier about the whole USA Network thing too, where you know they didn't have um, they didn't save any of the footage. They had to go through bootleggers. So probably to not have to go through something like that again, and also I guess to to keep the rights to it so they don't just end up on YouTube from people's random VHS collections so they can they can put the the high def footage onto their own DVD collections and and stuff like that. I think it's it's just a way to to make sure that they still have it if they need to use it again and 
to to give it to whoever wants to watch old movie trailers and just to to generally keep the rights, I guess. In a weird way, they didn't even keep the records of some of these old commercials. On the first, I can't remember if it was the first season or the second season set of the Transformers, the cartoon. On the extras, they have a whole bunch of old Transformers toy commercials. In every single one, the faces of all the kids are mosaiced out because they never kept all the release forms. They don't know who these damn kids are to get releases <laughs> to show their faces on the DVDs. Doesn't that kind of ruin it when three quarters of the commercial is a giant mosaic? That makes it creepy. Do, do you think things have changed that nowadays, say NBC or the Sci-Fi Channel is saving all of their promos? Because I, I interviewed Joe Strike once. He he was the lead promotional director at the Sci-Fi Channel back in their early years. He's He came up with some really, really unique original promos for the Sci-Fi Channel. They were original, sh- all new footage, you know, maybe using a voiceover from Dracula or some other film that they had. You can see a lot of this stuff. I'm not trying to turn this into a commercial. A lot of these are on my YouTube channel, Rare Video Trader. When you look at these, you go, these were inventive. These were unique. They felt so cool. Nobody saved them. If it wasn't for people like us, these are just lost to time. Do you think that things have changed, that maybe the Siffy channel now is saving these where they didn't back in 1992? Has the ideal changed that maybe this stuff has a sense of permanence now? I, I think it has. I think people are starting to realize more and more that, that there is a, a general interest for it, that there are people who, who enjoy it, and that there's a use for them. If you need to reuse something, you know, it's there. It's backed up. I'm not sure if, I mean, with Netflix, I think, um, I mean, a lot of it is it's it's streaming, and I'm sure that they they have the files backed up, and it's, it's a little bit different now. But, yeah, I'd say it's, I'd say it's definitely changing. Well, here's the thing uh, with uh, with with commercials and whatnot. Once they have them produced, Peter said it's a file, and they can put that on a hard drive. And when you've got, let's say, uh, you know, X amount of of uh, commercials and whatnot, you have it all on a hard drive. Well, you've got a hard drive that could hold, uh, you know, hundreds of hours worth of material, and it's it's the size of a book. Whereas in the old days, if you had uh, the spots were on VHSs, they were on carts. Oh, no, uh, they, they would not have been on VHSs. Back then, it would have been three-quarter inch tape. It would be those giant three-quarter inch tapes. Yeah, the big, the big freaking, you know, cart. Th- you know, it's just it's ridiculous. So they would take up so much space. And they actually, you know, they had vaults, but the vaults had to have certain kinds of regulation or else it would degrade uh, the material. And it just it was too much to archive for something that they saw no reason to keep. But now it's like they, they put it out there and they just it's a file that they can throw on a hard drive. And, and maybe who knows, they might use it at some point. They may not. But the thing is, it's there and it's not really taking up any tangible amount of space. Do you think it's weird that we're talking about this in this manner since all of us have bitched about the pervasive nature of advertising, especially in the Internet era, that we're now talking about why advertising? Because let's face it, that's what a trailer is. It's an advertisement. But that advertising should be archived as well. Is that not us kind of stepping back a little bit or is a movie trailer different than say a commercial for pert shampoo or for mac and cheese there's there's a difference between what we're talking about and then what uh just commercials are i don't particularly i understand the need for commercials i understand the need for trailers and advertising it is an essential business they need to get the uh the product out there in front of people's eyes or else they're not going to know it exists 
and consequently no one's going to buy it. The problem that I have and that we've talked about in the past is just the ways that they go about getting it in front of you. They're doing it in in ways that are more or less kind of forcing you to watch something where it's like if you're paying for a service well, then you shouldn't be getting advertising. It's like advertising was originally created so that you wouldn't have to pay for something. It's like, okay, well, you know, I'm going to watch this TV show and I'm not going to have to pay for, you know, cable, but it's going to be paid for by the advertising. And that's kind of the understandable back and you know, forth with that. But now, you know, you're going, you'll get Hulu and it's like, okay, well, I want to get Hulu Plus less commercials it's only less commercials (laughs) and it's like no if i'm giving you money i don't want any goddamn commercials and uh you know cable back when it first came out when you'd pay for the movie channels you used to get just uh you know the the material and now it's like okay well now i'm paying for a service but i'm also getting advertisements on top of that Mm -hmm. so that's when it really starts to get frustrating it gets frustrating to me in the movie theater I get there's going to be trailers and whatnot. Trailers, I'm but fine. then all of a sudden, where there's there's cell phone ads and Coca-Cola commercials, I'm going, no, 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 you do not. I don't mind it if you if you show up for the movie early and they're running those. All right, fine. They always have those local ads. That that's different. That's before showtime. But once it's showtime and they're and and they're going and they're showing Pepsi commercials and what's that credit union with the goddamn Vikings? Do you guys remember those really fascinating 1984 Dr. Pepper commercials, The Unusual, those ones where they're battling warriors on a post-apocalyptic wasteland or the one where he's in a Star Wars-type bar and whatnot? Do you remember that really expensive campaign that they had, The Unusual, in 1984? Not really, but that sounds pretty cool. Yeah, I don't remember that at all. Those were made for Dune. Those were those ran theatrically 90 second commercials before Dune in Mm. theaters and people bitched about it then. Now, I'll admit these are really kick ass commercials and they spent. Got to remember, this is 1984 dollars, a million dollars per commercial. That was unheard of in 1984. But it goes back. I'm sure it's even before that. I'm sure the Dr. Pepper commercials before Dune were not the first time that was done. It's not new. I'm glad that I have copies of those Dune commercials, those Dr. Pepper commercials, because Mm. they were so cool. Do you think that there's a difference between the archiving of advertising versus it's cool to it's not? I mean, is there really a difference between a soap commercial and, and a movie trailer when you get down to the fact that it's there to sell you something? What about when they use movies to tie in with some stupid product in the commercial you foe you foe you foe oh that was oh the robocop yes that was that was i love those i love those commercials so much doesn't he kick the refrigerator no he i think i think he tears the door off at one point (laughs) all to get these crappy noodles you foe you foe you foe oh yeah oh that was fantastic there was like the there was the fried chicken one. Yes, it was the fried um, chicken one. I forgot. I remember that one. He like he just he comes through the TV and then he steals the family's fridge and just walks out. <laughs> Asian it, RoboCop's a dick. Is that a better way to advertise or not, or is that sleazy of RoboCop the character to be kind of pimped like that? I want to see every commercial, everything advertised, be RoboCop showing up and just be like, hey, buy this product and then stealing something. That's how just everything should be advertised. It really, it should. I mean, I, I, I think 
it depends cuz some like i'm i'm not from the case or i'm not from the camp of i saw robocop shilling uh you know, uh fried chicken so now uh, you know robocop is ruined for me i actually kind of think it's it's funny as hell and i yeah. i like when they'll they'll do something like that it doesn't particularly bother me it doesn't really ruin it i mean yeah there is a little bit of uh, amount of commercialism like it, it, like, it doesn't it ruin it it doesn't ruin it for you when darth vader's having a lightsaber battle with the usher in the theater and the and remember the, the episode <laughs> that one was, or no the, that the, was uh, the, the 90s star wars re-releases where where he where the dude's when his flashlight yes that was pretty funny like the reason why I like those is because it, they're not just boring generic commercials. Like I, I like it when they when they'll when they'll like randomly throw in a character like Arnold will show up or or Freddy or Jason or RoboCop or Darth Vader. Or it, it makes the commercial more fun and it, it kind of it makes you kind of forget that you're watching some boring commercial for chicken or pizza or whatever because you go oh hey you know there's. There's the Terminator. He's, he's shooting slices of pizza at me. This is kind of cool. I don't think that one actually exists, but it's just an example. But yeah, right, I think well, those are... It doesn't exist, but it should. Yes, I, I, it I, should. I don't, dis- but I, mean... I don't disagree. But, okay, do you guys remember eh, maybe six, seven years ago, DirecTV had those commercials where they had, like, Sigourney Weaver reenacting the ending of Aliens, but then turning it into a DirecTV pitch, and Shatner uh, <laughs> doing the ending of Star Trek VI and turning it into a DirecTV pitch. Doesn't that kind of <laughs> bastardize the movies a little bit? Is it just because we thought those were funny that we're giving them a pass when we really shouldn't? Uh, those kind of bugged me, because that's mm. that's a little different, because you're taking the character and you're giving it context, and you're altering what the original product was where instead of just having robocop you know drop kicking a refrigerator you now have you know sigourney weaver in the freaking uh the exosuit the exosuit loader and and now she's you know you should go to direct tv and it's like nah. i i i'm i i i understand why they did them it was kind of clever but i wasn't really for them because that that does kind of because then then that actually to me will somewhat change the movie because now the next time you see Alien you're gonna think of you know when that scene pops up you're gonna think of the direct TV commercial so that mm. kind of changes the context of the movie. Okay, then how about when Michael Ironside as General Katana on Zeist was trying to sell us Labot Blue? <laughs> I I was ashamed. He had the hair and everything. He had the scar. Yeah, he was General. They didn't say General Katana wants you to drink Labatt Blue, although that probably would have worked better, I think. But it was Michael Ironside basically as General Katana, and the set is clearly the Zeist set of Highlander 2 trying to sell you Labatt Blue. Doesn't that demean the movie a tad? Um, I mean, even though Highlander 2 is not high art to begin with. That movie kind of demeans itself to begin with, so I don't I don't think <laughs> right. that commercial's gonna gonna really hurt it. Um, but I love that commercial. I, I remember seeing I saw that for the first time on your Facebook page, and I just I laughed hysterically for like five minutes. So I, I thought that was one of the, the greatest fucking things I've ever seen. With advertising being what it is in movies, and like I said, you've got all these different types of advertising, which I'm going to wrap into the term marketing. So do you think we've established or disproven just how much marketing is required for a movie? I think the best way to describe it is it's a necessary evil. It's something that uh, I, I, probably the marketers don't even like marketing. 
but they understand that it is something that you need. You need it to get out there. You need it so that people are, are aware of your product. Uh, without it, you know, you're, you're lost. And I mean, word of mouth is huge, but you need that initial push first. You need to get the ads out there. I mean, cr- look at the Super Bowl ads. It's every year they're, they're celebrated. You know, I'm not going to watch the Super Bowl, but I can't wait to watch the ads. So, I mean, that right there shows, you know, how uh, it's kind of like it's it's a blessing and a curse. It's something that we need, but it's something that, you know, everyone gets irritated by. Um, I'd say, yeah, it's it's a necessary evil. Some of it's cool. Some of it's annoying. Some of it gets in the way of the show you're watching or the movie you're watching. But when it all comes down to it, things need to make money. Things need to be seen in order to be seen. Um, you need to promote it in order for it to do well for people to go watch it. So yeah, it's, it's just something that needs to exist in order for show or a movie or music or whatever to do well. You have to advertise it whatever way you can so people can know about it. So you make the movie so it can do well, so you can make more of it. And I think that's, that's pretty much it. Well, speaking of marketing, Cecil, market yourself. Hey, you can watch me whore myself out at goodbadflix.com as well as geekjuicemedia.com. And why not head over to my YouTube channel as well? What about what about Peter? I, I, I don't know if we have successfully marketed you yet, but take your shot. In a world where you can find me on Twitter at Cinematica, <laughs> on Facebook, The Cinemasochist, and YouTube, The Cinemasochist, you can find a man who likes to talk about movies a little too much, the cinemasochist. You can also find a man who's defaming the memory of Don LaFontaine right now. <laughs> Rated R. <laughs> I'm an absolute whore at marketing, at marketing me, so 1201beyond.com. You can contact the show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Speaking of marketing, you can get t-shirts well, at 1201beyond.com. You don't get any. This guy. No, I was, I, I was helping you out. <laughs> Go to 1201beyond.com. Go to adamandeve.com. You know, first, I, I also, besides you two, in all seriousness, I do want to thank Joe Dante for taking the time to speak with me. And you guys all should go check out Trailers from Hell. It's a really cool site. And I'm not saying this because I interviewed Joe Dante. I was going to Trailers from Hell long before I ever got to talk to Joe Dante.
Radio Drome is a 1201 Beyond production. Visit 1201beyond.com for more great shows.